You are listening to an Elam Christian Center podcast. We hope that you are inspired, encouraged, and empowered by the message you are about to hear. Morena, Fangarei, Elam. It is such a privilege and a blessing to be back with you guys. It's been a while, but it is really good to be with you. I do apologize. I've woken up feeling a little under the weather, and I'm normally a hugger. So if I don't hug you after the service, it's actually out of love for you. <laughs> but it is good to be here. I just want to share a little bit before I jump into the message about what my recent season has looked like, to give you some context for the things that I'm going to share, because what I'm sharing this morning, it's not theory for me anymore. It is what I've had to live and to outwork and to wrestle through with the Lord in recent years. So seven years ago, the Lord asked me to resign from my dream job. I was the associate pastor for Shore Elam down on the North Shore of Auckland. And I had worked really hard to get to that position, and it honestly felt like I was living in a season of desire fulfilled. And then God asked me to resign. And I'd actually only had my full credentials for nine months, so I was like, come on, Lord. <laughs> I've done five years to get my credentials, and now you're asking me to like lay all of this aside. And he said to me that I needed to trust him, that ministry could take a different shape, a new form in the season that he was leading me into. And there were lots of opportunities that I've had in the past seven years with my writing and teaching that I would have only ever dreamed of, but the real ministry that he was inviting me into in that season was that of mumming. We have four children who range from coming up eight through to 28, and I had never, up until seven years ago, been a stay-at-home mum. I had always worked part-time and been home part-time with the kids. But the Lord asked me to come home full-time and to not only come home, but to do something that was on my never list, and that was to homeschool. I had said I would never, ever do that. But you know what? For three and a half years, I had the absolute gift and privilege of being with my kids every single day, nearly every single hour. And I, I miss that season. It's not the season that we're in now, but for that season, what a precious, precious gift it was. But I also look back on those three and a half years, and I'm really grateful for them because I realized that for one of my children in particular, they provided a safe haven. We had always thought that they had just a really big creative personality and that that was, you know, life was either wonderful or terrible and there was very little in between and that was just okay. But as they had to transition back into the public school system and the high school system, we realized that actually they had really serious anxiety. And that anxiety fueled a cycle for nearly two and a half years of anxiety, depression, self-harm, and suicidal ideation. And nothing ever prepares you for watching your child lose the will to live. But nothing also prepares you for how that chaos permeates your entire home and brings a sense of darkness and anger, not just to them, but to the family. 
and nothing prepares you for how mental illness can decimate a child's faith. And for me, I had to wrestle because almost overnight, it felt like we had been this family who had been faithfully serving the Lord and pursuing Jesus together. And now I found myself the mum, not just of one prodigal, but two prodigals. And I had no framework for how to parent angry, rebellious children. I had a profound encounter with the Holy Spirit at about 13. And I realize now that that anchored me in my teenage years. It never entered my mind that God wasn't real because I had so profoundly and personally encountered him for myself that I was sold out for Jesus from a really young age. And I can honestly say I never can remember a moment that I didn't love him. And so to all of a sudden be faced with the reality that God, whom I loved and treasured above all else, wasn't so important to the children that I loved more than life itself, was a really hard place to be in. And it continues to be a place that I am in. But I've also learned it is not a place that we have to be in in despair. It is not a place that is without hope. And as I learned to parent with grace, God parented me. And he really taught me so much in the last years about the relentless, unyielding nature of his love and the power of his grace. And one of the passages of scripture that he has really ministered to my mother heart through is a very well-known passage. It's the parable of the lost son or the prodigal son. And I want us to read it this morning. And I, wanted to re- I want us to read it through the lens of grace and what it teaches us about the grace of the father. Because I believe it's time not just for my prodigals to come home, but for our prodigals to come home. Because the thing is, the loss of a prodigal in the house of the Lord shouldn't just be a grief for their parents. It should be a grief for the entire church because we belong to one another. We are the family of God and the next generation do not just belong to their parents. Their parents have a special privilege and a special responsibility, yes. But collectively, as the family of God, it is our responsibility to love and to cheer on and to call home the prodigals. But we will not be able to take our place, to play our part in their homecoming if we do not understand grace. And so I want to read to you the definition of the word grace that is used throughout the New Testament. And I want you to keep this word in your heart and in your mind every time I'm talking about grace because this is what grace looks like. So the word is charis and it means grace that affords joy, pleasure, delight, sweetness, charm, loveliness, grace of speech. It is goodwill. It is loving kindness. It is favor. It is the merciful kindness by which God exerting his holy influence upon souls turns them to Christ, keeps, strengthens, increases in Christian faith, knowledge, affection, and kindles them to the exercise of the Christian virtues. Grace is all these beautiful things. It is joy and pleasure and kindness and favor, but it is also power. 
It is power to turn hearts. It is power to keep hearts. It is power to transform and to mature hearts. And that is what we need to be thinking about as we understand the grace of the Father. So I'm in Luke 15, and I'm just going to read verses 11 to 24, and then I want to share with you three things that this passage has taught me about the grace of the Father. So Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am, starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father. And I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and he went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Father, we just want to thank you for your word. We thank you that it is truth. We thank you that it is alive. And Holy Spirit, we pray that you would speak to each one of our hearts this morning, that you would lead and guide us into all truth so that we can align our lives with the will of the Father. We thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen. The first thing that God taught me through this parable was about the grace to release. As you can imagine, when you're parenting a suicidal teenager, fear becomes really normal. You live with it every day. But it wasn't just about that. It was about the pig pens that I could see them and another child choosing. And you don't want your children to have pig pens. <laughs> You know what the pig pens mean, and you want to do everything that you can in your power to spare them from the mud of the pig pen. And so my parenting, quite honestly, began to get toxic, because anything that is driven by an unhealthy fear becomes like that. I had a desire to control. And one day, I just felt the father say to me, Amy, I gave my son his inheritance. And I knew that he was talking about this parable. And honestly, that whisper stopped me in my tracks. 
In verse 12, it says, The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Now, what the son asked for was legal. He had the legal right to say to his dad, I want my inheritance and I want it early. But it was the ultimate sign of disrespect. It was tantamount to saying to his dad, Dad, I wish you were dead and actually you are dead to me. So just give me what you're going to give me one day anyway. And I don't know about you, but if one of my kids came to me and said that, <laughs> I don't know that I'd give it to them. <laughs> I think they'd be more like, you will learn some respect and I will teach it to you and you can get out of my house until you are ready to show me the respect that I deserve. That would be our natural instinct. But the father here gives the son his inheritance. And as we read scripture from Genesis through to Revelation, we see that the father values the free will of his children. He doesn't always agree or, you know, give permission to or encourage how they choose to use that free will, but he honors their free will because he does not want robots. He does not want slaves. He wants children. So he values our free will. And the thing is, I think that we're often good at showing grace to people while they're in the pig pens. We're often really good at showing it when they come back. But when they're starting out on their journey, showing grace, that's hard because it feels like permission. And I have had to learn how to show grace without compromising boundaries. And the thing that I would say to you is I cannot stand here and tell any of you what it looks like to show grace and hold firmly to the truth. And that is why it is so important that you cling to Jesus for yourself, that you cultivate a deep well with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, because only He knows you and your child and your family's situation, and He delights to give you wisdom. So if your children or someone in your household is choosing to go and squander their inheritance, that is reason for you to turn to the Father more because you are going to need wisdom and grace and abundance and only He is going to be able to show you how to marry them and how to dispense them well in your family and in your season. And I want to give this encouragement to those of you who are in the trenches of raising your children. Do not grow weary in building up a godly inheritance for them. Pray for them. Read the word with them. Bring them to church. Encourage godly friendships. Keep building a godly inheritance. We're between those two seasons. We've got some who are at home, some who aren't. And for those of you who are in that season of having to learn to release, of having to trust what it is that you have sown into, I want to remind you that First Peter says the inheritance of Christ does not perish, it does not fade, it does not spoil. Your child might choose to squander some of what they have been given, but ultimately God guards what he has deposited into our children. And this is the thing that has ultimately enabled me to release because when we release our children with grace, it's not about K Sarah Sarah. It's not passive by any means. It's only possible because we have an understanding of the Father. 
Because ultimately, while we are releasing them, we are releasing them to him. And I will tell you now, he is a much better God than we will ever be. (laughs) But it's so important, the grace to release, because when the son comes to his senses, yes, he acknowledges his sin, but that's actually the second thing. The first thing that happens is he remembers how good it was in the father's house. And Romans 2 says to us that it is the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. And so I want to say, if you love a prodigal, maybe they're your child, maybe they're your sibling, maybe they're your parent, it is your kindness to them, not cutting them off, not banishing them. It is your kindness and your love and your favor to them that will witness to them of the goodness of God. It was the goodness of God that turned the son's heart towards repentance. We need to understand God's kindness, but we also need to understand that what we entrust to him, he keeps watch over. He relentlessly loves our children and he never, ever gives up on them. We're told after the son came to his senses that he went back to his father's house. And it says this in verse 20, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. And he ran to his son and he threw his arms around him and he kissed him. He saw him from a distance. That means he was proactively looking and expecting that his son was going to come home. But throughout scripture, the posture of watching is a posture of prayer and intercession. And when this journey began with this particular child, the Lord just kept saying to me, on your knees, on your knees, Amy. And he said to me, you have got to stop fighting with your child and start fighting for them. Because you don't war against flesh and blood, Amy. You war against powers and principalities. And that book that Sarah held up before, Prayers for a Generation, it's not just written by me. It's written by mothers all over the world who have prayed specific things for the rising generations. But a good portion of it came out of that season where God told me to get on my knees and to not just pray for my child, but to pray for an entire generation. Warring for this generation is not just the responsibility of parents. It is the responsibility of the church. And in Lamentations, Jeremiah, he chronicles for us a really bleak time in Israel's history. And he talks about how the enemy has been able to come into the sanctuary, into the temple, into places that the enemy should never have been allowed access to and has carried off not only the treasures of the temple, but also their children. And their children were in exile. And he says, 
to not just mothers and fathers, but to Israel as a nation, he says, arise, cry out in the night as the watches of the night begin, pour out your heart like water in the presence of the Lord. Lift up your hands to him for the lives of your children who faint from hunger at the head of every street. We are living in a time where the enemy has come into our homes and he has carried our children off. And they are in a spiritual exile, even if they are physically with us. And I believe God is saying to his church, will you arise? Will you cry out? Will you stop being K-Sarah-Sarah? And will you put a stake in the ground? And will you stand watch with me and believe for their safe return? Will you believe for them to be satisfied? He says that they faint from hunger, and he talks about this repeatedly, how they're out there begging for bread. There is a generation who are hungry for what only God can give them, and they are out there looking to be fed, and the enemy will feed them. And so we must arise, and we must start offering to them the bread of life, the only one who can satisfy the hunger that they have. But the incredible hope that we have as we arise to stand watch is that God watches with us. He commands his angels concerning us. He stations them around us and around our children and around our homes and our churches but he also utilizes the saints to pray. And I could honestly stand here and probably keep you all day and give you testimony after testimony of how at just the right time, somebody has messaged me with a scripture, with a prayer, with a vision that they have had of my children. But probably the one that struck me the most was we had been in hospital one night with a really bad episode in our child's mental health journey and a stranger who I had never met but followed my ministry page messaged me and said, I don't know what's going on, but the Lord woke me at 3 a.m. to pray for you and one of your children. God watches for us and he activates his people And so I want to challenge you, when somebody comes to mind, do not push it away. You don't know what that assignment might mean for that family, for that generational line. You don't have to have some fancy word or vision. Even if you just stop and say, Lord, I don't know what's going on for that person, but you've put them on my heart and I'm going to pray. And I just ask you to bless them. I ask you to be with them. I ask you to encourage them and to strengthen them. Equip them, Lord, for whatever it is they're walking through. When you read the armor in Ephesians 6, it's not just the sword that is the offensive weapon. We're often told that's the only offensive weapon we have. No, it's not. The second weapon is the prayers of the saints. And even greater is the saints who know how to wield the word. The Father watches. And just as he is not passive in his watching, when he sees them turning, he runs. He runs, and we're told he meets them with compassion. You know, the father had not just, sorry, the son had not just disgraced the father. 
He had disgraced his entire village. And under the Mosaic law, not only should they, not only were they entitled to stone him, they actually had the responsibility to. To stone the sin of disgrace and sin, rebellion, so that it didn't continue and permeate their entire culture. And so when the father makes sure that he is the first to meet that son, when the father throws his arms around that son, he is sending a message, if you want to stone my son, you will have to first stone me. He was making sure that the son did not get the punishment he deserved. And this is a beautiful picture for us of the cross. Because the cross is where we see God's ability to marry mercy and grace and justice. Because he would not be a just God if he left sin running rampant. If he let it go unchecked, what kind of God would he be? I wouldn't want to worship a God who turns a blind eye to evil and sin. So he knows that sin must be dealt with. It must be punished. But for those who will allow him to embrace them, who will allow the cross to cover them, Jesus, the Father, they bear the pain of the punishment on our behalf and they cover our sin with their grace. But what I love about the Father is he doesn't just give us grace to release. He doesn't just give us grace to stand watch. He has grace to restore. Because wouldn't that have been enough? Like the son had sunk to the lowest. He'd disgraced the father. He'd wasted and squandered everything that he had been given and entrusted. And he'd ended up not just feeding the pigs, but eating their food, which in the Jewish culture was as low as he could go. Wouldn't it have been grace enough just to not be punished? But the father doesn't stop there. And he says, quick, bring the best robe, put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. This parable is part of a trio of parables, and they all talk about celebrating something that was lost and is now found. But this is the only parable that says, my son was dead, and now he is alive. Because exactly what Sarah talked about, God doesn't just move us for moving's sake. He transforms us. He takes what is dead and he brings it to life. And the robe here spoke of restoring honor. The ring spoke of restoring authority to act on his father's behalf. The shoes spoke of restoring sonship and belonging because only a slave went about in bare feet. The father here is saying, you're not just welcome home. You are welcome back as a full son. I am giving you back your honor. I am giving you back your authority. I am giving you back your sonship. And that is what Jesus does for every single one of us who choose to believe that he is the Son of God and that he died for our sin and that he rose again. 
When we place faith in him, we are embraced by the Father and our honour and our dignity, our authority, our sonship, it is restored. And it's so important that we understand and believe this grace to restore because it will impact how we pray. It will impact how we choose to stand in the gap. Thank you for listening to this Elam Christian Center podcast. Please subscribe to keep hearing more life-changing messages. For more information about our church, please visit www.elamchristiancenter.org.nz.